am here with Tyler Youngblood and Ryan Knapp of Azahar Coffee. Um, Tyler and Ryan, I would really love to hear a bit about your history in the coffee industry. Uh, whoever wants to go first. Um, yeah, how did you end up where you are today? Um, so for me, um, yeah, I kind of stumbled into coffee. I think how most people do. Um, I kind of fell in love with coffee during college. Um, had a relationship with it as a, you know, that drug that helped me get through um, really long evenings, a lot of studying, um, but also really enriching conversations. Um, and then uh, during my time in college, I uh, studied abroad in East Africa um, and spent significant time. Uh, most of the trip was in Uganda and then also a couple of weeks in Rwanda and um, uh, got to be around coffee for the first time, like where coffee comes from. Um, I um, lived in a dorm right across the hall from um, a student that was from a coffee producing family. So he kind of um, shared a lot of uh, what coffee farming looked like growing up and his family was very involved in it. Um, and specifically being in Rwanda um, during that time, um, it was about 12 years after the genocide that took place in Rwanda and hearing how um, Rwanda was looking to rebuild their infrastructure and the economy. Um, coffee came up again and again during uh, um, a lot of lectures um, that uh, we went to. And um, it was the first time I kind of realized this uh, beverage that you have every day, how it connects um, so many different parts of the globe and the impact it has on the other side of the world. Um, and so that really just opened up my curiosity of coffee. And then, um, yeah, I got done um, with that. And uh, f first thing I did when I got back was try to get a job at a, a local coffee roastery um, and was able to do that and had no idea um, anything about coffee. <laughs> uh, didn't know the difference from like an espresso to a cup of coffee to what a latte was. Um, and slowly that became a huge relationship where it came from. Here's a beverage that is kind of fun to drink and I love spending time with people to like, whoa, there's this whole world and a, a really, really deep um, rabbit trail to go down with it. And um, yeah, here I am uh, <laughs> about 13, 14 years later and still going down that rabbit trail. Time flies. Yeah. It's a crazy drug, right? It's cool that your first perspective on the coffee, like the production side, uh, of, on how you know coffee's farmed, was formed by somebody who did participate in that side of the industry. You know, like for me, my perspective was formed by people explaining it to me by by roasters, um, and so it's it's really interesting that you, like being in Rwanda, that you started like your coffee journey with with that. Um, so you started working uh, at a, a coffee roasting company. Uh, I know that you you did you started a coffee roasting company at one point, and then uh, now you're working on the production side uh, with with Azahar. Um, I know that Azahar was uh, founded in part by the other gentleman that we have here with us, uh, Tyler. What's your uh, coffee journey like? By the way, <laughs> Youngblood, 
What's up? Uh, that's like an amazing last name to have. Oh, yeah. It's not my real it's last a, name. It's not your real last name. No, no. Okay, good. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> of course it is. Um, uh, coffee to me, I got into it uh, while doing a road trip through South America. Um, I bought a 1997 Subaru Outback in southern Chile with a buddy, a surfing buddy of mine. And uh, we traveled all around um, South America and we're making our way back up to California. In Colombia, I was pretty randomly just invited to go see a small coffee farm and um, spent one morning uh, with um, my business partner, Keith, going uh, all around the farm and learning about how coffee is produced on a farm in Colombia. This was a pretty typical sub two hectare um, coffee farm doing its own processing. That means making making dried parchment coffee, a washed coffee. And that um, represent, I would also say pretty representative of the current roughly 540,000 small family owned coffee growing operations in Colombia. And after spending a few hours on the farm and learning about everything from how the coffee gets picked to the different varieties of trees that are on the farm to how the skins of the cherries get removed and then how the coffee uh, ferments and is washed and is taken out to dry on beds, uh, we kind of watched that whole process and then loaded up the coffee with the farmer and went down to a local purchasing station of the co-op that he was associated with and um, watched uh, as he sold his coffee, got told what price he was going to sell the coffee for. And then, um, and then the, the bags of um, sisal, which is kind of Columbia's version of jute were opened up and the coffee is just emptied into a pile on the floor of other coffees. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, a broom was used to sort of uh, shove it all together. And um, Keith and I were both like, what the hell? What happened to everything that we just learned about this coffee? Um, and, you know, is, is there not a world in which this coffee could have not been mixed together with other ones? And what would it take for that to happen? And is, you know, and if, if it weren't be to be mixed, is there not a world also where instead of just showing up and being told what your coffee is worth, um, you could be part of the process of defining what it's worth. And so that was uh, early, that was February 2010. And um, that sort of set us down this path of making a lot of mistakes <laughs> and learning about how the coffee industry works. But uh, I've been in Colombia ever since then. Um, and y- fast forward to now, and we're, you know, we export. Um, green coffee to some really great roasters around the world. Us um, included. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And work with um, with uh, many small farmers in, in southern Huila, uh, sorry, in southern Colombia, um, areas like Huila, Nariño, Tolima. Um, and at the same time, we also own and operate um, 
our own cafes in Colombia and engage in wholesale there and have an online store and stuff like that. And that's, uh, that's basically it, Colin. It's <laughs> a great story. So you, you said you started in Chile, worked your way north. Um, that's correct. It wasn't really a straight journey north, though. We went across the continent to, uh, to the Atlantic coast in Brazil and then um, put the car on a barge in a little town called Porto Velho on the border of Bolivia and Brazil. Floated it upriver, downriver, sorry, down the Rio Madeira to Manaus and then kept traveling upriver on, on the Amazon. Um, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I dreamed about when I was in Peru, I was seeing a lot of like amazing uh, Volkswagen bugs. And I heard that yeah, they had a factory there that was building that 1970s model up until like the year 2000 so you have like a lot of really well-kept Volkswagens there. amazing and, and I was like my buddy is a mechanic and we were trying to figure out how to like fly to Peru buy one and drive it up cool. to the states it never came together but maybe one day still that's inspired yeah um, reminds me so of the Renault factory in Colombia producing a lot of old uh Renault fours and oh. classic models like that. Yeah. Okay. That now that you say it, I did see a lot of that's yeah. I love that stuff. Um, but so did, were you, did you have any experience in the coffee industry before you got into this? No, zero. Much like Ryan, I used it to, uh, fuel my studies. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to be a writer. I still want to be a writer. Mm. Um, but so I would, uh, it was, I studied literature and, and, uh, would drink a lot of coffee while writing and reading. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, yeah, so, and what Azahar has really, you know, from my perspective, turned into is this incredible example of, um, you know, A, providing transparency down the supply chain and just, yeah, like, really advocating for, for farmers, for the people that are doing the work. You, you seem to operate as a very effective uh, and quiet Middleman in the operation. Uh, sure, it's a uh, it's much appreciated. So no question there. Just kudos to both of you <laughs> for the work. Uh, Thank you, Colin. Yeah. So w this is uh, this this podcast that goes in correlation with our the magazine that we published called Source Code, and it was inspired largely by the the work that we saw Azahar doing. Uh, we know that there was a um, we call it a handbook of some sort a sustainable that was coffee the buyer's guide sustainable coffee buyer's guide yes yeah um and seeing that i know got the wheels turning for us on how we could do something similar that would just trying to educate the consumer much on how you were trying to help educate the buyers on how to participate responsibly um where so i'd, I'd love to hear both of y'all's perspective um, on, we're gonna kind of dive deep fast in this, um, but a big question that we've been really trying to bring up with everybody is the idea of the prices paid for coffee and how they correlate to uh, a living wage, a, uh, something, a, a sustainable price. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, maybe if you wanna take turns answering from your own perspective. I don't know who wants to go first here, but how how do you think that coffee should be correlated to 
mean, how, how do you think the price paid for coffee should be correlated to a, a living wage for a farmer? I think it's pretty, um, it's a pretty critical question, uh, an important one to ask. And um, the idea behind a sustainable coffee buyer's guide, as you know, is to have a set of recommended prices that based on farmers average cost of production and productivity uh, will allow you to know um, the likely impacts uh, on their income on their net income what they actually make at the end of the day and so you can have a set of pricing to achieve certain incomes and we went back and forth a lot on what income goals to actually set initially um, I think that the methodology or the formula that sits at the heart of a sustainable coffee buyer's guide, um, which is price equals income over volume plus cost of production, is in a certain way agnostic. You could set any income goal, any goal for that I that you want, um, but you, you need to decide what is <laughs> what you think is a good income goal to inform price. And it's um, it's you know, I don't think it's one, a decision that any one company or group should be making alone. Um, we chose three just to start, just to put some out there and say maybe this can begin a conversation. Um, and the three that we chose in the beginning were poverty line, not because we thought poverty line should be a goal, but we thought it was important to illustrate that a lot of the pricing that farmers are receiving most likely won't even allow them to achieve uh, an income in line with poverty line. And um, so we set that as for the sake of, ho you know, hopefully positive shock value to kind of have us all wake up. And then um, the next goal uh, was a minimum wage, um, in this case, a minimum wage in Colombia, um, plus an allowance for benefits um, to be paid as if you were um, a private contractor. And uh, so, you know, for, for you able to, to be able to pay into your pension plan and health care. Um, and so that was the second goal. And then the last goal we actually called, um, it's just sort of a working title, a more sustainable income. And the idea behind a more sustainable income was that every adult that depended off of the income from the farm could earn that same minimum wage plus an allowance for benefits. Um, and we figured that that, would those would be kind of three starting points we purposely didn't get into um a living income um in this case we think of it we as a living income instead of a living wage because it's typically the income that a farm owner makes instead of an employee if we were talking about the employees of the farm we'd probably talk about a living wage um but we specifically we didn't get into a living income in this because and and i, I say this while we are contemplating working it into the next edition of the guide. Um, but a lot of the living income calculations that I've seen done for coffee, um, I think can sometimes be um, potentially problematic for the following reason, and, and it depends how you do it. But one of, you know, one of the ways that a living income can be calculated is We'll take the example of coffee. You make a certain amount of money from coffee, um, and then you look at subsidiary forms of income as well. So whether you're selling plantains, 
or whether you're selling chickens on the side. Right. Many farmers don't just grow coffee. They have other exactly. crops that they're growing, other ways of making money during the year. Exactly. And depending, some, some calculations also, uh, some, some, some ways of, of calculating the income also will look at, for example, um, remittances. So payments from your relatives that you're receiving because they're holding down a job in another country, say in the global north, say in the United States or Europe. And so our kind of at fear at, at in, in the first version at using living income, which again, admittedly is also, you know, uh, related to how much experience we have doing it was that if we, um, you know, if we, if we allow for these calculations to be made when you're looking at things like remittance payments or even the sale of, again, plantains, whatever it is, how much are we then subsidizing coffee with other things? when what we really want to know here is kind of like what is the ground truth of what coffee should cost to actually be economically viable and to be something that can allow the people that make it or produce it to thrive and so i've seen in a lot of places coffee farms only get by particularly small not very productive coffee farms only get by because um someone is that you know someone's relatives are working somewhere else and sending money back right and so, and so I think that the way that the, that the living income gets calculated is, is really important. And so that's something we wanted to take our time to look at before working it in to the next um, version. And right now, frankly, we're looking at kind of this, this term uh, to replace a more sustainable income, um, which some other people are starting to embrace in the coffee world, which is a prosperous income. Um, and we're looking at, at a prosperous income and thinking what would be the prosperous price to generate this prosperous income. And it should, in our opinion, be something where the money that you earn from coffee, exclusively coffee, be enough for you to thrive. Um, much the way that we are all professionals that focus on coffee and make our living from coffee. Um, right. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. I work, and that's the, so the a distinction worth, worth making is that we're in specialty coffee. We're we're working to produce a product that is well above average quality, and we are asking farmers to produce a product on their end that you know allows us to do that. So yeah, I, I don't want to have to work three other jobs in order to sustain myself doing this job. That would kind of, with with my mindset, that would burn me out pretty fast on being interested at, at all. So, well said. Yeah. Like I think. And I, and I think that distinction that you, or the, the per, your perspective on that with how so many farmers are, there are plenty of examples of farms that are uh, doing really well, producing specialty coffee, but we want to find, figure out how to grow that. You know, there's a lot of farmers that aren't exactly. doing well mm -hmm. growing coffee. So yeah, I think that, that distinction of how many farmers are relying on other crops as well as income from families working in the states um, that that perspective is important because that that's just the reality of where we're at uh, is that so many people are growing the coffee that we purchase and aren't you know seeing the the same prosperity that that we that we're seeing even though you know that's a 100 percent and i i mean i think it's really time for us to all press the reset button and know you know what what are we really talking about if we want to do good by the people that we work with that are responsible for we're drinking what 
prices are we truly talking about and the information is there and it's available it's just a question of collating it and looking at it seriously and truthfully and then having a reckoning of what needs to actually happen for this kind of pricing that really justifies or i guess um works when you know for the for the economic reality of different productive models you know it's very different to grow coffee on 30 hectares in brazil in a semi-mechanized way than it is to grow you know coffee on a farm under two hectares in colombia or a farm that's under one hectare in oaxaca or you know a small farm in kenya or ethiopia these are all very different realities and i think that we have the information now at our fingertips it's just a question of really really being honest taking an honest look at it and then deciding uh what to do yeah and i, I think it's just like particularly you know looking at um the industry that we're all a part of as specialty coffee um is we have a narrative um that th these are the best coffees in the world this is a this is a small piece of the pie of like what actually exists out there um and uh the narrative goes it takes a lot of energy and work to grow these coffees that are special so the price is higher and it has a huge impact on uh, farmers lives and um i think probably most buyers um as they've come through on this podcast or people that you talk to um when you start going to these communities um the narrative isn't always there's just like wait a second you know specialty coffee in the world is growing um and you still see a lot of specialty coffee producers um living in poverty um very few um and and it, it definitely depends and um there there are cases where um you know there's definitely exceptions where you're seeing areas f that are flourishing because of the impact of um uh specialty coffee and uh, um, good prices coming in. Um, so I think what always happens is there's this burning question and um, a lot of conscious um, companies um, and coffee buyers were just like, how much is enough? And, uh, and we'd love it to be as simple as just saying, you know, pay $3 <laughs> across the board. But I think that's what's fascinating about um, this work and what we're realizing is, you know, it, it is different. Um, even within Colombia, it varies all across the country um, what that looks like. And, um, and yeah, I think just the idea of like uh, how much should something cost, um, yeah, I think when we talk about specialty, you know, there's a, there's a hope and I'm, and I'm optimistic too because when we look at that narrative, um, uh, I think there's a lot of people that are asking that question, like how much should I pay? And I, I do think that's part of it is it's confusing where it's just like, wait a second, this coffee over here costs this much. Why would this cost more? And, and I think uh, really, you know, pulling that uh, curtain back a little bit and having information, more tools, I think is uh, really at the heart of this project. So mm -hmm. the tools can be there. And then we have decisions to make where I think, um, um, most people would definitely be on board and agree that specialty coffee should be providing um, livable wages and hopefully prosperous, you know, um, lives for people on both sides. You know? Right. 
And then so within the specialty coffee spectrum, uh, how do you all feel about the, uh, the you know, varying qualities, getting different, uh, like uh, the existence, a lot of times there's premiums paid for higher quality coffees compared to like, you know, we, we grade coffee on a point scale and your like anything above 80 points is going to be considered, you know, specialty coffee. Here at Metric, we really, as much as I have challenged myself lately, it's still like we mostly look for things that are in the top. Here's a funny little point on my side is we have 100 points, anything above an 80 specialty. I've seldom, thing, I've seldom seen coffees that score, I feel like most of the coffees that I see are like 82 to 87. And so like that's the spectrum of the point scale that I interact with. Um, but, and then, you know, with metric, it's like everything seems to fall more into the like 84 to 87, 88. But for the, for these specialty quality coffees that we are, you know, seeking to make sure that the farmer's getting a, a sustainable income off of that, where do you think the place is for, for premiums for you know, co coffees that are tastier than others? You want me to yeah, I, I I don't think there's a yeah. there's one answer to that. I think it's a big it's a big question. It's one we certainly ask ourselves all the time. Um, I think that a, a, you know, at, and I'm going to speak very personally from our business's perspective. The a sustainable coffee buyer's guide is a toolkit that we want to exist independent of our business, and that anyone should be able to use, and that is able to conduct research every single year to sort of give these recommendations to the industry. Um, we want to use it as sort of a baseline and say, we don't actually care if this coffee got 60 points. I don't think I've ever said 60 points before, but if it got oh, a 60. Great. We should talk uh, about 60 points. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, we probably wouldn't buy it, but if we were going to, we still wouldn't want to pay below a certain price because we know what the impact of that price is going to be on average on a producer in a certain region's income. So we don't want to go there. Um, that being said, once a baseline is achieved and we all feel good about the baseline, then I think that we also should be continuing to reward excellence and quality. And when someone achieves something amazing um, with, a, you know, with, with, with a certain harvest or certain pass or whatever it is, a certain lot, they should... Um, you know, they should stand to benefit from that. And, and I say that because I think it makes sense economically, but also because it's rewarding and it keeps someone engaged. Um, and uh, I, I think at anything you do. And so I think, you know, that um, once sort of the, you know, the, the, a baseline um, that we can all feel okay about is achieved, then um, from there on out, you know, we should, we should be, competing again sort of for a limited supply of something that's awesome and if it's if it's really good i think it should command a special price and so i think that whether or not you want to tie that exactly to you know this price for an 86 this price for an 87 this price for an 88 i think that's tricky because unfortunately not everyone speaks the same language of cupping unfortunately it's still a small percentage of producers cup their own coffees and so it's kind of a one-sided negotiation tool 
but I think that, um, you know, there's, there's general sort of categories of, wow, this coffee broke into like this super juicy while still clean, really interesting, great category that allows us to do a certain thing with it. Whereas this one is, you know, it's good and sweet, but it's maybe a little more chocolatey, a little more basic and we can do this with it, you know? And so I think that, uh, you know, in, in, in my approach to it, I wouldn't make it uber specific like point by point but i i do think that there should be yeah a system for excellence that you know varies from from one organization to another if that makes any sense i don't know it makes sense to me any perspective on that ryan yeah i think um i i totally agree <laughs> on all of that um i think uh where where the conversation often gets unique is when there's the premium attached and um a producer has to, you know, have a delivery that's insanely brilliant to make a good income. But there's also a lot of risk involved in that too, where, you know, you can do everything really, really well. Um, and yeah, maybe you got heavy rains or, uh, maybe, you know, the fermentation just changed a little bit because it was hotter that day and and um you still have totally acceptable coffee but it falls half a point or one point and that's uh that's a change in livelihood um for that family so i think it gets really interesting once there's a baseline that's um supportive and um i'm by no means suggesting that like uh <laughs> uh a 60 point coffee has the same value as an 84 point but um uh, I th what I've observed a lot is we spend a lot of time, um, um, often you see a lot of energy um, um, spent between the difference of uh, 85.5 and 86 or, you know, in these really small windows that, um, and, you know, I'm talking about things that could be happening on the farm level, but um, in reality as um, uh, from a QC perspective and someone that's been doing that for a long time, um, uh, even having an off day or uh, when you cup a table and for some reason the first coffee you always feel a little harder on than the second coffee or yeah. um, even though I've been roasting for 10 plus years you have a roast that just doesn't come out right and like I know you're putting a lot of value on that like moment of uh, of cup score um, and um, yeah, I almost, I think way too much value in some cases um, uh, when there's so much on the line in that like fine spread of score. Um, totally agree. Yeah. I, uh, I really, I, yeah, I don't like having those moments where I, uh, I, I love talking about coffee. I love, uh, you know, I love it when I get a coffee that I love, but as far as that, you know, that process of value, like evaluating a coffee as being superior to another, mm -hmm. whenever we're working closely with farmers, that, that process is so tough to, uh, because yeah, like I said, in an honest environment, we, it is so based off of our personal preferences, even for the, the people that I work with that are, uh, you know, professionally trained as Q graders, a lot of but, you know, Q graders have bad days too. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, I think that whole process of using our senses to uh, determine the value of something is 
does it leaves a lot of room for uh at best mm -hmm. you know uh misunderstandings and you know misrepresentations and then you know at worst it leaves room for people taking advantage of other people mm -hmm. and that in, uh and that's the fact that so few farmers are trained to taste coffees in the same way it, it just puts so much uh, power on our end of the, the supply chain. So I think that idea of, you know, we, we have to make sure before we talk about, you know, premiums and quality that we're making sure that like having these minimum standards that are, you know, as far as quality standards that are, you know, uh, achievable for farmers consistently, if we're making sure that those standards are compensated in a way that is, you know, prosperous, then that I feel like that's the only way that I could ever feel, you know, get a decent sleep at night mm -hmm. telling a farmer that their coffee was an 82 when they thought it was going to be an 86. I don't feel as bad if I know the farmer's gonna, you know, sell their coffee for a fair price regardless, but it's, it's, it is a really, it's a tough thing to, yeah for me to uh, have to deal with in this on my side of the field. So once again, it's, it's nice having people like the two of you that are doing this work. Uh, I, I think back to, so I, I was uh, at an event that you were doing, Tyler, in, in Boston a couple of years ago, where I think that was, I believe that was shortly after this, the guide was put out. And one of the things, you know, that stuck with me and that was it uh, basically the idea that you know it's, it's a guide for buyers to participate sustainably in this trade but also with that idea of evaluating the cost of production in this you know, very methodical way it gives a farmer uh, just a clear picture of if if they are if their farm could be profitable at all in the current market I think that that you know that information I feel like with some of the conversations that I've had with farmers, it's like sometimes if you do interact with a certain, with the, the specialty coffee consumers at all, it can give you a perspective that if you do this, then you will be prosperous. And some of the data that you found was showing that there's really no data to support that you would be profitable if you, even if you had a successful year and that that can be really crippling, I think, to to some farmers, but it's also better that they find out before they waste their time and their money, which is so limited on a bad harvest. Um, I think that, like, just that realistic perspective is so important. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it can be really, like, confusing, too. Um, I think going back to, um, you know, believing that there's really good intention, um, in a lot of these conversations where um, as a buyer, um, you can come in and it's like, this is a really good premium. Um, this is more than maybe neighbors are making or um, more than I might pay in a different country. Um, and I think that's sometimes the reality is, uh, yeah, how you get down, you know, having a guide that um, showcases once you have known cost of production, um, how much profitability is actually there um, is one part. Um, I did kind of want to circle back to on the quality side um, um, and, and the cupping because I, I do think there's there's a huge importance um, 
kind of putting just like a a, a roaster's hat on and like a champion for specialty coffee mm-hmm. where I think, you know, like at the end of the day, what makes a huge difference is having something really delicious that we're able to serve and we're able to share. And um, we're, you know, everybody's actually, you know, a consumer's happy to pay like an extra dollar or whatever for a cup of coffee or a couple more dollars for a bag of coffee. And a lot of that does come back to, you know, sweetness and brightness that is informed through cupping. So and definitely, um, definitely see, you know, the value of, uh, of that feedback and the importance of um, pushing the envelope. Um, but I th- also, I think like holistically, when you're looking at, at that, if um, there's a huge drop off, um, when you're working with somebody that's picking ripe cherry, that's logging their fermentation, you know, that's doing all these steps that are a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a drop off in that. That's money that's able to be reinvested so that this coffee's delicious the following year and the following year. So I think right. just from like a holistic standpoint, it's just like there really needs to be that stability first. And then, and then we get the chance to um, be really excited about, you know, the competition on that upper edge where um, I don't see that going away anytime soon where everyone really wants the, the brilliant coffees that um, cost a little bit more. Yeah, I yeah. hope not. No, that, as long as it's tasty, I think the customers will keep buying it. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear about maybe some projects that Azahar has been involved in, like some specific ones, um, as well as I know that there's been talk about maybe Azahar extending outside of Colombia at some point. So, uh, yeah, if, if I could hear. Is that a wink, wink? <laughs> yeah, I, I did wink on, for those of you that aren't in the room with us. Yeah, we've been, um, we've been wanting to work in, in Mexico for quite some time. And um, our plan was to do what we could to start working there in 2020. Then <coughs> this virus started going around. And so we decided to take. <laughs> Uh, sort of a obligatory break and postpone that for a year. And this year we just started to get um, our feet wet, um, doing a little bit of uh, exploring in, in Chiapas and in um, Oaxaca, where there's some fantastic coffees and really interesting producers and groups. Mm-hmm. Really great mezcal. <laughs> as well as, as good mezcal. Um, and uh, I think Mexico is also really interesting uh country to be working in coffee in right now because there's also a blossoming local scene of consuming coffee there um, and there's a lot of you know talented roasters and um, cafe operators uh, and uh, so for me I've been I've been traveling there recently it's been fascinating to see kind of how much demand there is for some excellent coffees inside Mexico and and some of the pricing that farmers are receiving is is sometimes um the local market is paying better prices even than the external market. And so it's uh, something uh, my colleague Beta has done a lot of research into and it, it's been, it's been really cool. And so we, you know, just, just starting, starting there. Yeah, I'm, uh, that uh, Mexico has been really interesting in that for us to be getting samples and yeah, not seeing the the highest quality that we hear exists and then like say one of our baristas was he, he's from mexico and he brought back some coffee from a roaster there 
and I tasted it, and it was like, oh, that's that's where the good quality coffee's going, and that's a really unique situation uh, compared to anywhere else that I've been personally. Uh, usually, it's the the specialty market is all elsewhere, and so it's cool to see that yeah, that there is internal you know consumers and that the prices are higher than what we feel comfortable paying sometimes. So it's a, I think that's a best possible scenario uh, for us to have to get it together on our side and get some higher prices in order to be able to get access to their coffees. Agreed. I love to see that. Um, but yeah, Ryan, maybe uh, could, would you like to talk about some of the, the Columbia projects that Azahar has been involved in? Um, sure. Um, for instance, like the Pickers Project that, that we buy coffee through? Yeah, so um, the Pickers Project, um, Tyler, you can fill in the gaps. Is <laughs> sure, <laughs> go for it. It's, it's your passion project, of course. Um, but um, yeah, one of the things that we've, um, and this started uh, far beyond before, you know, my time um, starting with Azahar, but um, uh, there's always been in transparency and in co conversations about cost, um, generally what gets communicated is um, how much did you pay for coffee? And um, a lot of work's gone first towards, uh, well, what's the FOB price? So what's free on board, essentially? How much does the coffee cost before it leaves the country that you bought it from? Um, which has been a starting point. Um, but in that, you're missing well, how much did the farmer actually get paid for that coffee? Which yeah. um, Many times so there's a lot of different steps between the farmer and it leaving the country. You have yeah, so there's uh, so much, um, and it really ranges because there's some farmers that uh, see a coffee, you know, like they're not only just, uh, you know, picking and uh, processing and drying coffee, but they might also dry mill it and export it, so there'd be lower costs there where there's other avenues. Um, which is a lot of the coffees that we work with where um, a coffee has to be transported to either a cooperative or association and there's storage and then it needs to be transported to um, um, a dry mill and be dry milled and then it needs to get transported again and um, there's a quality control teams uh, working on that too so there's a lot um, of movement and cost involved so so a step that has always been central to Azahar is um, farm gate pricing. And so um, every coffee um, that we sell um, on the contract is not just going to be your FOB price, but it's also going to be priced to the farmer per cargo of coffee, um, which cargo historically um, was, it basically translates to two burlap sacks of parchment. Um, and that's what a mule could carry down a mountainside. And that's what almost, that's what most coffee farmers in Columbia um, uh, are selling their coffee for, so. And about how much weight is that in pounds? Um, 125. Kilograms. 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 Yeah. No one actually like rocks up with 125 kilogram units, mm -hmm. um, but it's still just the, right, the, the, the unit the that's, right. yeah, you know, yeah. also not that much anymore, but yeah. it's also the unit that's, it, that's still used to talk about gotcha. price. Um, but I still imagine a mule walking down a mountainside every single time. <laughs> With even the max the, load? Even I, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the image that I get when I think of a carga. So yes, it's, <laughs> um, but so in Columbia, that's how coffee is, um, 
that's what matters to a farmer. So right. if you tell a farmer, I pay X amount for coffee free on board, that means nothing to them. If you say, they don't even I want to pay they don't, they don't, this many U.S. dollars. And they dollars don't sell green coffee most of the time. Right. For green coffee, that means nothing. You know, like how much um, are they making for their dry parchment that they're going to be selling? Right. Um, so that's a really important part. Um, just going back to the guide is that um, the amounts that we're using, it's in local currency. Um, and as the guide um, moves into more locations uh, with Mexico on the list next, it's going to be listed in um, uh, local currency again, as often we just convert everything to the U.S. dollar, which, mm -hmm. um, again, doesn't translate to what a farmer's making. Um, totally. It changes throughout the year. Yeah. Yeah. Weekly, we see, you know, change in uh, um, the exchange rate, so mm -hmm. which of course has a big impact. Um, so all of that long background information to get back to the Pickers project. Um, so we've always had a big emphasis on um, farm gate pricing and what a farmer is receiving. But really um, the most vulnerable part of uh, the supply chain um, is uh, the people harvesting the coffee. Um, and that's usually the lowest paid labor in the entire supply chain. Um, and it's easily the most grueling work um, uh, and I don't say that lightly knowing how grueling <laughs> a lot of the work is throughout the supply chain um, but yeah you've got somebody individually picking cherry all day long and when we talk about specialty coffee um, and wanting those really delicious cups there is a lot of intention that needs to go into picking and training to only pick the ripest cherry and to pick really well. Um, so seeing that as, as a problem and um, something that you can't really lay the blame on coffee producers either to say, hey, you own this farm, you should pay your pickers more because there's cash flow issues. Um, there's, you know, a picker needs to be paid the day they come for their work. Um, if they deliver the coffee and uh, um, the rates based on score, they're not sure how much they're going to get paid for it, when they're going to get paid. So there's, there's a lot of issues into like why this happens. So generally, um, when you look at coffee harvesting, um, it's migrant workers, and this is pretty common everywhere in the world, honestly, but um, uh, that are not getting paid very well. Um, and don't have you know job stability either. They're just kind of bouncing around, um, picking coffee. Right. They kind of so often they follow the harvest uh, to an, to an extent as it occurs in different countries. Yeah, which is I guess unique in Colombia because you can kind of move around and mm -hmm. probably harvest a lot of the season. Um, in other countries, you know, it's it's a seasonal work where people you know show up to harvest for a few months and yeah. then have to find other work. But um, so the project um, is really looking at um, getting more um, a more equitable situation for um, uh, uh, pickers. And so um, we piloted a program in Nariño, um, which I know you're very familiar with this coffee, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, where farmers are getting paid um, more for cherry. Um, You'd know the specifics, Tyler. On yeah, pick, pickers are getting paid more for cherry, and farmers are getting paid more for their parchment coffee. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it's a pilot because we think we can do a lot better. And I say we like the whole industry. Um, but you know, we just wanted to start and say, if, if the picking quality improves significantly, will the quality of the coffees improve? What we found over the course of three years and several containers is that they definitely did. Um, and essentially the challenge was very simple. It was let's all learn about multiple, the multiple reasons why picking ripe cherry is, is important for our goal of achieving really high quality coffee. Um, and so, you know, it's important from a quality standpoint, but it's also important in turn. It's, it's positive when it comes to yields, more, uh, ripely harvested cherry will translate to a better yield or less weight loss from cherry to parchment, for example. Um, like, uh, I've learned with, with just picking the cherries that the, the way that the coffee is picked, the care correlates to the, the following year's harvest as well. You can damage the yeah. tree. Exactly. Um, if anybody, if anybody could ever get the chance to pick 10 pounds of ripe cherry, I think it would teach most people enough about what they need to know as to why pickers should be compensated for yeah i I think it's an exercise that everyone should should engage in everyone should go berry picking you know it's like (laughs) yeah it's yeah yeah i spent an hour picking blueberries the other day and it's just like it's hot you're worn out and and blueberries ripen at the same time that's something if you don't know coffee coffee doesn't ripen uniformly on the tree if part of the reason this is needing to be done by hand is that you know if you want to do it well you need to pick the cherries that are the ripest and you'll have a cherry that's green right next to a cherry that's you know ruby red and fully ripe exactly so you have to ideally you just want to pick the ripe one come back when that green one is turned red uh, and it's not even just red right it's yeah what the bull's blood (laughs) sure yeah i mean there's there's different and it's different from one variety to another right I mean, in, in, in our opinion, for Castillo uh, to be harvested well, it needs to be, you know, a much deeper kind of purple, whereas, you know, than, than, than the kind of red that signifies ripeness for Secatura. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, essentially what, what the, uh, we set out to do was just to um, make sure that the, that the farmers, after learning together with a group of pickers and a group of farmers about all of these things and tasting coffees that were the result of unripe um, picking and then the ones that were the result of ripe picking we all set to work um, on producing these coffees and um, the pickers uh, received uh, when we started two times the going rate for a kilogram of cherry Um, one of the issues of course is that it's still peace pay and um, what we're working on now in the next iteration is how to create a system that allows us to get beyond that um, so that we're talking about, you know, much more formal situation when it comes to employment. And I mean, all of the labor in Colombia is basically compensated peace pay right now in coffee and uh, many other countries as well. And so we want to look at a system that allows um, willing participants to... Um, to do things differently where where people aren't just getting peace pay um for the arduous work of harvesting coffee right so it looks something like having a a group of people on a consistent pay schedule that are sort of employed by azahar exactly i mean one of the well not necessarily azahar then looking at a separate 
okay. um, a foundation for that, not for profit actually, but mm-hmm. the, um, the, the important thing to achieve there is, and this is, this is where I think anyone who goes and tries to pick coffee learns a lesson, which is that sure you can pick some, uh, pretty ripe coffee, but it's going to take you all freaking day <laughs> to <laughs> fill up a bucket. And so a talented picker knows how to pick coffee relatively quickly and also of very high quality. And I think achieving that balance is sort of what's key because from the farmer's perspective, you know, as we talked about in relation to a sustainable coffee buyer's guy in the beginning of this conversation, a lot of farmers are not thriving either. And so to take farmers and say, Hey, you know, the labor economy in your country is quote unquote modernizing. And now, uh, you need to put everyone on salary and pay them benefits <laughs> is also going to be very hard economically speaking. And so farmers don't want to lose the risk mitigation that they have through peace pay right now. And so what we're working on is a system where laborers can be compensated, um, but farmers can still pay per unit that's actually harvested instead of having to pay, you know, a day wage or a month wage or even an annual wage, um, whereas a separate organization can do that um and so we, we can get it i don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole and there's a lot of details we can get in sure. later but we're basically working on that um kind of more formal and official iteration and bringing it to some new regions so that we can also see the impact on quality and hopefully on uh on people's businesses in a good way <laughs> um, and people's livelihoods when it comes to the actual the actual people working doing doing the picking of the coffee um and should have you know a lot kind of more results from that by the end of this year i really look forward to uh being able to participate in that any way that we can um i think so that's about we've been talking for about an hour now that's about as far as we want to go um so yeah i I really hope for anybody uh, that's been listening to this that this shows uh if, if at all, uh, the importance of having somebody at Origin that is a, a partner to us uh, that, you know, outside of the farmer, um, you know, we, if it's, this is work that we would not be able to do uh, without, you know, fully relying on the work of Azahar. So uh, I want to thank you all very much for the work you do. Uh, and I really, uh, yeah, just wanted to uh, drive home as much as possible the the standard that this is setting uh, in the rest of the industry. I've, I've really seen a lot of, uh, uh, it seems like this conversation that Azahar has been having has started to pop up all over the place. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for what you've done. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, we're able to do this work because of roasters like Metric. Um, oh, so come on. <laughs> but, yeah, we appreciate that. And people like Colin. Yeah, more and more. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. All right. Um, yeah. Hope to see you all in Colombia next time. Absolutely. Sounds great. <laughs>